welcome to the Thrive Subscribe Podcast, where we inspire you, challenge you, and give you the tools you need to transform your pharmacy practice. We'll help you to thrive with new and old revenue streams so you too can succeed with your patients and your business. Now let me turn you over to your host today, Dr. Randy McDonough. Good morning, everyone. This is Randy McDonough with Thrive um, uh, Subscribe in our weekly podcast. Today we have uh, Paige Clark, and Paige is the Director of Alumni Relations and Professional De Development at Oregon State University College of Pharmacy. So welcome today, Paige. We, we appreciate you coming on this morning. It's earlier out in the Pacific Coast time. I know that. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Thank you for having me. This is really very nice to be asked. Thank you, Randy. Yeah. Well, you've got a, a very extensive background in helping pharmacy and community pharmacy and working within the Board of Pharmacy and doing statutes and regulations. So I'm excited to have you on today. Can you give some background for everyone so they know what kind of experiences you have in pharmacy? Of course, absolutely. Um, I've been a pharmacist for 30 plus years and, um, you know, had a, had a very uh, interesting and, and um, probably somewhat traditional pharmacy career, have worked um, in chain pharmacy for a period of time, worked for an independent pharmacy, uh, which was one of my favorite uh, times. I think I think as pharmacists, we all carry that in our hearts. You know, Paige's pillbox is always in my heart. <laughs> That's the name of my pharmacy in my, in my, uh, in my dreams. Um, but I also spent about 11 years in long-term care pharmacy uh, as a consultant pharmacist there and also ran a national training program during that time. But one of the areas that has really um, been very fortunate uh, in my background and has informed some of the work that I've been able to do here in Oregon was working for the Oregon Board of Pharmacy as their first, the title was pharmacist consultant, and that meant that I did a lot of policy work and, and some legislative um, support work for the Board of Pharmacy here in Oregon as well, and, and that really helped inform where I ended up um, finding myself um, professionally working for Oregon State University College of Pharmacy, certainly as the alumni director, which is a tremendous uh, um, fun and a great honor, of course, but also doing professional development, meaning that I run the college's um, fairly extensive now uh, continuing education department. And that's really what has brought me to, if you will, kind of the center point of um, um, really standing up um, uh, prescribing for pharmacists here in Oregon. So hopefully that's a, a useful piece of a background. Um, it's been a, a real adventure and we have been um, very um, fortunate here in Oregon to have tremendous um, statutory legislative support for pharmacists prescribing. Well, I appreciate that because obviously that background that you had as a consultant to the Board of Pharmacy in Oregon has served you well. And you've done some groundbreaking work to allow pharmacists to prescribe hormonal birth control in the state of Oregon. So, Paige, can you provide us with some commentary about this program? Well, certainly. I'd be happy to. It's interesting when you look at Oregon as a state uh, in, in a couple of components that are useful for listeners, I think. One is that Oregon likes to see itself as very um, progressive in the in the landscape of healthcare. By that, I mean we have um, 4.25 million people. So we're just a big enough bucket that um, we can actually do some things and we're small enough to be nimble. 
We also are of the perfect size that, uh, frankly, legislators can find us. We can find them. Um, and they know Oregon State University College of Pharmacy well as the, the one um, state public mission-based um, institution that has a college of pharmacy here in the state. And, and they, um, they and we take that very seriously. So that's an interesting component. Secondly, um, Oregon, uh, is a, uh, generally politically blue state. Um, but we have some very strong leaders on both sides of the aisle, if you will. And that has served us, meaning the world of pharmacy quite well. When you look at bipartisan issues, such as public health come, uh, outcome issues, that's where we have been well, well positioned in the state of Oregon. I do work with a number of states around the nation and have tried to be as helpful and useful to them as they try to stand up um, similar types of initiatives. And so to lay the landscape is probably useful for most people. Interestingly enough, Oregon also has 15 CCOs. Most of you know them as ACOs. That has actually worked um, it's a bit of a challenge, but it has worked to our advantage because Oregon's Medicaid population is extremely managed, right, in, in the state of Oregon. And that has been great because everyone is so very outcomes focused that that has been useful for people to pick their heads up, look across the landscape and figure out what resources there are to assist the state of Oregon in, in um, meeting health, come, health outcomes. And so um, the story of what, what really happened here in Oregon is that, um, you know, pharmacy has done some good work for, for many years, which is true in many states. You have pharmacists doing incredible things throughout our nation. We're very fortunate as professionals to all have colleagues that just really um, are astounding for sure. But what happened is there was a Republican physician legislator here in Oregon who really wanted to um, to find a way to grapple with Oregon's unintended pregnancy rate. And, um, and in doing so, I think he was looking across the landscape, decided that he could, um, if you will, as I say, pull the pharmacist lever and make really great outcomes happen on behalf of the citizens of Oregon and the state of Oregon and the Oregon Public Health Department. So in that, he crafted language, and there had been several states that had looked at this issue and, and, and tried a couple of approaches, but Dr. Bueller, Representative um, Newt Bueller, put pen to paper, if you will, and wrote a statute that that allowed pharmacists to prescribe, to go right straight to the source, to prescribe hormonal therapies in Oregon. And that changed everything. That was a game changer because it then placed pharmacists in the very same lane, if you will, as all other healthcare providers that assess patients for the purpose of either prescribing, in this case, hormonal therapies, birth control, or in the case of pharmacists, we refer, of course, in certain instances, et cetera. And so that was step one. And I, I think it um, I think it actually surprised a number of us. Um, I do remain very involved um, at certain levels politically in the state of Oregon. And, and um, you know, from some perspectives, this sort of came out of the blue. But he reached across the aisle to some Democratic colleagues, and everyone can come together to agree that having outcomes in this arena 
um, will be very positive for patients, for the state of Oregon, financially positive, et cetera. So um, that, that flew through, governor signed, here we are. So really, if you think about this, there are sort of three buckets as I describe this. There is the legislative or statutory bucket, and that piece needs to be crafted correctly. It needs to say pharmacists are able to prescribe hormonal therapies. Bucket number two is your regulatory bucket. The Oregon Board of Pharmacy is a highly functional group. Um, you know, fortunately, I had quite a bit of work experience with them, and that helped to really inform um, the partnership that all three buckets have. The third bucket really being, um, if you will, the implementation bucket. And in that bucket sits the educational piece that ties all of this together. So um, with all three um, of these areas working very closely together, we ended up being able to come around behind this and support the bucket number one, support the, the legislation, support the regulation that actually provides the guidance, as you well know, that we as pharmacists um, need from our boards of pharmacy in order to stand up um, a provision like this. And so um, all three buckets working together has really helped us correctly, um, I guess the word would be benchmark pharmacists, because this is new territory to have completely independent prescribing, if you will, in a community practice setting. And so just for purposes of clarification, um, pharmacists, including here in Oregon and everywhere else, are doing amazing clinical work, generally under collaborative practice agreements. Um, perhaps people use different terminology for that, but collaborative practice agreements are generally the term. And under a collaborative practice agreement, you have a physician at the top of that agreement, in essence, um, providing protocols and guidance and that sort of thing to um, pharmacists who work perhaps in healthcare systems and are, and are doing fine, unbelievable, really um, patient management in those situations. You also have some collaborative practice agreements that are um, trying to extend out into the community. But again, you have an independent prescriber with all the full authorities of that at the top of a collaborative practice agreement. The difference between this is the pharmacist is the independent prescriber. You are solely responsible for the patient assessment, and that's what the training takes you through and the regulation support to determine whether or not that patient is appropriate to um, have hormonal therapies prescribed for them. There are lots of ties back to, um, to a variety of areas, but, but maybe that's a good introduction, Randy. Does, does that um, provide some support? Yeah, that was, I love all that. I mean, it's, it's very cool. And especially as I, as I th think about this, you know, you had this physician legislator who really saw value and, and the need from the community was how do we reduce unintended pregnancies? And as he looked at the resources, he identified pharmacists. And I think that's just fantastic. You've got a lot of background working for the Board of Pharmacists, so you understand the regulatory bucket and also the legislative statutory bucket as well, too. Luckily, and I and I do say luckily, because having a physician who had the foresight to see pharmacist being a independent um, provider that could prescribe birth control, hormonal birth control, 
that's a big move. And not all states will have someone like that who I think would be like the catalyst. So one of my follow-up questions to you with that is, what do you do in a state that may not have that kind of an individual who can help lead the charge? Um, what do you have to do to try to help create the same type of environment within your state? Yes. Okay. Everyone asked that question, and I really appreciate how very fortunate you you couldn't have said it better. We're very fortunate to have had someone with great forethought and determination to have that the public health outcome that really would be impactful. So that said, um, I, I'm going to back up just a little bit and say that um, um, the state of Oregon, Oregon Health Authority, um, you know, our public health division, um, a group of physicians, including Oregon Health and Sciences um, University, um, Dr. Maria Rodriguez, she and uh, she, a physician at, at OHSU, she has reached out across the nation to her colleagues in various states. And so there's actually a very quiet movement happening to say this is actually the model that is working. So I, I hope to offer that hope and ray of sunshine in a variety of states. As you know, Randy, there are multiple states that are trying to, to accomplish this um, by making pharmacists some level of independent prescriber. The problem is if you don't actually pick the pharmacist up and place them, as I like to think of it, in the, in the same lane as every other prescriber for purposes of birth control prescribing, the financial realities of if you're going to be able to um, properly um, pay the pharmacist for their time for doing a patient assessment associated with prescribing is that you end up not being able to really initialize this and stand it up on a broad scale because I don't care who you are, professionals' time is very, very valuable. And that is true of pharmacists, physicians, nurses, you know, nurse practitioners, I don't care who you are. Um, you know, accountability for, financial accountability for that time is the key. And so there really is a movement among physicians who are understanding that outcomes are um, the name of the game. And therefore, they have to um, empower, if you will, and properly um, support pharmacists uh, in order to do this. So there are things happening out there and there are, I mean, my phone rings at least every week, I would say from different states asking questions. And by that, I don't necessarily mean pharmacists asking, although they certainly call, but um, you know, I mean public health people calling or um, folks who are, who understand that this is actually working Maybe they're even physicians. Maybe they're legislators. And that's where the power comes in. Um, you know, we are positioned as pharmacists to do this very well, particularly with proper benchmarking. And the benchmarking goes back to the payment piece um, for the public health entity. And then as that rolls forward out of Medicaid payment, of course, into the commercial payers. And, and, and one of the things that has been useful here in Oregon, I mentioned that we have so many CCOs. All of those companies have various lines of business that roll out from Medicaid. So if the pharmacist is credentialed and enrolled for purposes of performing this service in Medicaid, it is rolling out into the commercial payers as well. So that's a very roundabout answer to what would a state do if they don't have such a legislator? My answer is hang tight you've actually got more people out there who are understanding the value of doing this, particularly as studies are beginning to roll forward in the financial outcomes 
for a various state in doing this. And um, there are a couple of publications out there already. Um, anyone can Google and find them. And Dr. Again, Maria Rodriguez and Dr. Lorinda Anderson, who's our faculty member, have have published a couple of different articles, and they're 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 useful for folks who um, who are really hoping to bring forth some information for their their legislators. So I think the key is it's um, it's it's been interesting to go down this path and observe other states saying, well, let's just pass um, something that says pharmacists can fill in the blank, you know, do this on protocol, which is not how this lane works, um, using the full billing codes um, that allow a prescriber to do a patient assessment is, is crucial. Um, there's certainly the state below us, California, lots of fine practitioners there, but their language, as most people know, says furnish. Um, there are several other states that, that are using other euphemisms, and if you use such a euphemism for patient assessment and prescribing, you do not fit adequately in this lane. <clears throat> and so I would say do the legislative work correctly and get it done right, because if you want to stand, you know, take everyone's uh, resources and time and energy to stand up a um, you know, a provision like this, you've got to have the financial support to do so. I totally that's agree. A long answer. No, that's a good answer. <laughs> and I totally agree with you too, that the legislative and statutory become so important with the wording. One word can really change the whole meaning. Um, of that's that, it. Uh, regulate. And so we got to make sure that it is right. And it really does elevate the pharmacist. So I do have a question on the payment model. So you're saying mm -hmm. pharmacists are able to bill at the same level as a physician for the same type of uh, patient care process. And so Correct. can you tell me what, what kind of codes or what kind of payment there is out there for pharmacists providing this service? Yes. So um, I'm, I'm not going to actually spew the, the codes out because I'll definitely get it wrong. And Lorinda, Dr. Anderson would laugh at me, but so I won't do that. But, but um, the, the essence is that a pharmacist can um, as a prescriber, when you've been put in that lane with all other prescribers, it hinges on the patient assessment that you do, and it is the very same patient assessment process based on the MEC, the national standard for evaluating a patient, whether you walk into a physician's office, an NP's office, a pharmacist, um, or, or any other healthcare provider. It is the same process. That has been an empowering truth. And so as you run the patient through the MEC as the, as the guiding um, element there, you will come to the very same conclusion that any other healthcare provider would come to. Um, in, in, and and payment-wise, it's always interesting for people to know roughly about $40 per patient assessment um, is, is about where this where this lands. I think it's, I don't even know, what it, $41.10, something along those lines. I'm definitely quoting that wrong, so take that for what it is. But my point is ish, right around there in the $40 range which is which is a very um, adequate uh, reimbursement for the pharmacist's time in um, in in investing in this patient assessment. That has that has really made this successful. A, uh, a challenge, certainly, to be fair, of this is that we all work in RX systems. No matter what system that is, we enter our data in the RX system. That data goes up into you know wherever it's going. Then it has to cross over and go and and be paid down the medical side. 
that is certainly the challenge for pharmacy. But I think those organizations, those pharmacies, those um, individuals who are working hard to align in order to land in this lane and be paid efficiently um, are finding finding uh, ways to make the IT connection and make this happen. And I will say the next thing that the state of Oregon did was realize how successful this is very likely to be. I mean, it's already working its way toward toward proofing that out. The second thing was Senate Bill 9 passed this year. Governor signed it, and that has to do with pharmacists prescribing of insulin in emergency situations. Lane number two has just been built um, for the same reason. Um, the intent is from a public health standpoint that by placing pharmacists again squarely in the same lane as other providers from a patient assessment and prescribing standpoint, there can be tremendous um, savings by the state of Oregon, efficiencies, and excellent patient care. So I guess that's my argument that it really is worthy of having a state follow in this path and have pharmacists uh, independently um, work to get themselves in this lane. So here's a question for you, and I'm not sure how long the um, regulation has been put into place and for pharmacists to actually prescribe the hormonal birth control, but obviously it's mm -hmm. had an impact that you got lane number two. So right. from, a, from an outcomes perspective, Paige, can you tell me as far as what impact they've seen so far since pharmacists have been doing this? Have they seen numbers go down? They have. And and Maria, again, I, I will I will point everyone to Dr. Maria Rodriguez and her publications. She did a publication about two years in and she showed millions of dollars of savings already. And um What's interesting is she's looking at Medicaid data, right? Publicly um, retrievable data in the Oregon health system. Um, but what's interesting is that it's also happening, if you will, on a on a patient pay basis, right? Um, because once the benchmark was set at about forty dollars per provision of this, you're also seeing um, patients for a convenience factor, perhaps you know, walking into their Costco pharmacy or their pharmacy down the corner, you know, on the corner, walking in and, and saying, I realize you can provide my birth control um, prescription here at the pharmacy. Um, can you help me with that? And they're like, yes, it's about a $40, you know, cash pay fee, which from a women's care standpoint is efficient. It is easily accessed right there at the point of the pharmacy, et cetera. So, um, you know, there are, we are seeing impacts, and that is why the state of Oregon built lane number two for emergency prescribing of insulin. If we can save patients, of course, from having to walk into an emergency room um, when they've run out of insulin or it's nine o'clock at night or, you know, whatever the, the situation may be, and allow a pharmacist to prescribe um, and therefore, bill effectively uh, insulin. You, you now you've got a, a game-changing situation. Absolutely. So one of the questions I have for you, because being the uh, director of alumni relations and professional development, I'm assuming then you have an impact on the type of education. So is there some kind of certification that the pharmacists have to go through to be able to participate in these programs? There is, and and 
and this is always an interesting, somewhat thorny conversation, but I think I've spent so much time now delving into the payer side of the world, I have to say, you know, having really spent a lot of time in the, in the regulatory side and even the legislative side to be, to have spent so much time in conversation and workshopping, as I like to call it, with the payer entity, starting with Medicaid. I have come to appreciate that because this is a leap into deep water, if you if you think of it that way, there needs to be a benchmarking component. And we as pharmacists understand we are very well educated, very well positioned, and we, we are really ready to provide services such as this. And pharmacists do so, again, back on the other side of the world, under collaborative practice agreements, granted, under the umbrella of that collaborative practice agreement, they do amazing clinical work in, in a variety of settings already. So um, I think that at this moment in time, it has been essential to have a benchmarking component that manifested in, in a CE, in a continuing education certification that has been really instructive to me and important um, that that has met so many needs. Um, we felt like we were building this bicycle as we were riding it, frankly, because the state of Oregon um, expect, had very high expectations. So careful what you wish for. Um, and they had a pretty tight timeline. And so I was very fortunate to be able to pull together a number of amazing women's care experts and uh, leverage um, Dr. Lorenda Anderson, our faculty member as well. And we ended up building a five-hour continuing education course that is fairly robust but is certainly very manageable um, for pharmacists in all eras of their career path. Um, and um, we have also been called upon to build various state versions in the many other states that are following in this path. And respectfully so, every board of pharmacy has um, their own statute to deal with that directs them and their own regulatory landscape in which they need to stand this up. And so um, it's, it's imperative that the um, educational benchmarking and support for those pharmacists be very carefully tailored state by state so as to fit everyone into the lane appropriately for not only patient safety reasons, of course, but also for the reality that we're in today of payment reasons. So every other state is a four hour version of the course. And that's because the Oregon Board of Pharmacy um, initially felt it extremely important that, um, that, that every pharmacist study very carefully the regulatory components structured by the Oregon Board of Pharmacy. And, and there, there's extensive guidance provided by the Oregon Board of Pharmacy since really they were first to actually delve into this from an independent prescribing sort of soup to nuts standpoint. So hopefully that's a helpful piece of background. Very good. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, um, Paige, you're also involved in the college's Entrepreneurial Academy. Can you tell us more about that academy? Yes. Oh, my goodness. It's been uh, such a, a passion area for me. It, and one of the things I was thrilled to be able to start um, start up when I came to the college seven years ago from the Board of Pharmacy. And, um, you know, one of the things in our profession that I think is is 
proving out to be entirely true, we have got to have good entrepreneurial, creative thinkers, problem solvers. What is the problem and how do we solve it? Um, not only in our narrow silo, if you will, in the healthcare marketplace of pharmacy, but how do we impact and interface with all of these other components? And so our Entrepreneurial Academy is a place for our students to um, really experiment. We do business case competitions. We bring in all kinds of judges to judge that. We look at um, if you were to dream in solving particular problems, what would those outcomes look like? We've had students that have developed products. They've developed um, processes. They've developed clinical provisions, all kinds of interesting things. And I think it's imperative for those of us who find ourselves in the education realm to continue to grow those really entrepreneurial, creative, business-minded thinkers because they're, they're our future without question. I appreciate that because, you know, my daughter who lives out in Minnesota just sent me a, a text yesterday um, informing, and I already knew about this, but one of the um, big uh, uh, pharmacy groups in Minnesota is closing 100 um, pharmacies which um, mm -hmm. represents, well, maybe it's not 100 pharmacies, but it's a large number of pharmacies, but it represents a loss of jobs for 100 pharmacists and 200 technicians. And that's that's mm -hmm. a commentary we're hearing more frequently. And as mm -hmm. I think about colleges of pharmacy and what our product is from a college of pharmacy, it is making sure that we're developing our students for a world that's evolving in a healthcare system that's evolving. I think what you guys have created is exactly what, it, what we need um, because we got to tap into those entrepreneurial um, energies of our students. Um, these are smart people and, and excited and they've got the energy. And I always used to say, you know, what, what I love about a student is they, they just have blind ambition. <laughs> they they yeah. believe anything is possible. And I love that. And, you know, they haven't been, they haven't been hit so hard by the world saying hey, I can't work because anything is possible in their eyes. And that's how we get change. And that's how we create transformation within pharmacy practice. So I appreciate the work that you guys are doing out there. So thank you very much for that. Oh, that's very nice of you. I could not agree with you more. I think it's imperative to the ultimate success and trajectory of our profession collectively. It is the single most important thing, probably, that we are creating these highly entrepreneurial individuals. This is moving way too fast to sit back on our heels for even a moment. And I will say here in Oregon, uh, um, actually this week, we experienced a similar situation with um, closing of a large segment of um, sort of a regionally uh, owned and managed um, pharmacy chain as well. So it, it is happening, I think, under everyone's feet right now. And so transitioning not only our, our students, and, and making them see themselves as entrepreneurs, but also helping our current practitioners transition into an entirely new mindset on a daily, weekly, and annually ba annual basis. What are your goals? What are you doing? And how are you making it happen is crucial, absolutely crucial. Um, we're, we're certainly looking at that, and I'm standing up a retooling your career initiative from the college as well. Fantastic. And so that actually leads me to my last question for you, Paige. You know, we, we got to keep the excitement, the energy going. So tell me what your vision is for community pharmacy practice in the next five years. Oh, my goodness. There's a loaded question. Well, um, I, I, we've had such interesting experience here with pharmacists prescribing, you know, and we've, we've, 
we've um, initialized, I think you would say, a lot of different terms. You know, it's um, maybe prescribing post-diagnostic. Um, you know, I think um, my opinion is that, you know, diagnosis is, is a game that we don't play. Um, we're all about the appropriate um, outcomes for a patient through the vector of their, their pharmaceutical care, right? That's really what we do so, so very well. And I think that wouldn't it be interesting to see um, pharmacy practice entirely transitioned to, to, to that focus? And that probably does mean some independent prescribing given really appropriate benchmarking, really appropriate, um, you know, safety bumpers, really appropriate guidance, really appropriate regulation. I, I truly believe this is the direction that we are going to find ourselves going very rapidly. And, and I'll circle back to something that I had said before, you know, I think there are 14 states now working with Oregon in a variety of different capacities, including legislator speaking to legislator, physician speaking to physician, certainly pharmacists speaking to pharmacists as well. And, and probably most importantly in all of this is healthcare division speaking to healthcare division. That's the true power. If, if the public health division in a state XYZ can um, really connect with Oregon and say, how are you doing this? How are you accomplishing this? Everything else around the outside of that lines up and all the lanes are going the same direction. And that's what I truly believe will be happening here in the next five years. That's fantastic, you know, and as we, we talk about the closure of some of these pharmacies and, you know, the concern that we all have about, you know, the, the whole area of, of community practice, um, what we have to realize is it's working in Oregon because of accessibility, because the pharmacist yes. and the patient have access to each other. And I think people are going to start realizing that, man, we do have to create a new business model, new payment model, um, because we can't have a loss of all these pharmacists who are valuable resources. I can tell you, Paige, I have so many communities that come to me who want me to open up a pharmacy in their community because they've lost their community pharmacy. And once you lose it, it's, you may not ever get it back unless that new payment mm -hmm. model changes. So I think what you're talking about for the next five years has to happen. I think, you know, pharmacists and colleges of pharmacy have got to up their game when it comes to developing the skill sets and the knowledge. Um, but you're on the right track, and I sure appreciate all the work that you've done. You, you're helping to move the profession forward, which we need. So, Paige, do you have any, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Just to really hopefully um, inspire folks to hang in there um, and realize that it is imperative if you're going to dive into this provision, the payment piece has got to be there with it. And, um, you know, solidly working with your um, physician leaders in the area um, is, is probably, and, and, and public health is probably the biggest message that I can leave you with. Um, that is the key to success. It really, truly is. So what a, what a delight to join you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for joining us. I know we had to be more flexible with the schedule and, and you're willing to be flexible with yours and getting up early. So thank you very much, Paige, and you have a great weekend. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. The Thrive Subscribe Podcast is brought to you by 
Thrive Pharmacy Transformations. Visit us online at tptransformations.com, where you can join our free community to inspire you, challenge you, and transform your pharmacy practice.